The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. If you're following along in a pew Bible, it's page 1177 as we continue in God's Word in the book of 1 Timothy. Today's passage deals with the church and the world outside the church. So it's such a relevant passage for us. Perhaps you've been feeling that the culture in our country is shifting. And as Christians, we may start living as exiles in our own country. For the last 10 or 15 years, academics and scholars who spend their life writing about such trends have been warning that they are coming to pass. And indeed now, it's sort of inarguable that they're coming to pass. Here's a simple way to summarize the change that's happening. If you have spent most of your life in the 20th century, Christianity may have been questioned or challenged or even deemed illogical, but it still held some cultural respect. If you're going to spend most of your life in the 21st century in our country, Christianity is probably going to be thought of as dangerous, immoral, and even hostile as a barrier to the social revolution to come. So what should we do? Well, uh, Carl Truman also has been writing about this for a while, and, and I was really helped with his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He poses the question, if we're to look to a century of human history to learn from, from our church ancestors, where would we look? He says, well, a lot of Roman Catholics would want to get back to the papacy and remember when they had cultural control. Maybe Protestants would want to get back to the Reformation and, and remember that level of Significance, but he rightly explains that neither century really could be returned to and neither are replicable. So what century is actually more like the one that we live in today? And he argues that it was the second century. In the second century, the church was a marginal sect. It was thought of as an outlier in a pluralist society. The church was held under suspicion by those who had cultural cachet. Here I'll quote him. He writes, this is where we are again today. The culture has slowly but surely adopted beliefs, particularly beliefs about sexuality and identity that render Christianity immoral and inimical to the civil stability of society as now understood. The second century is in a sense our century again, where Christianity is a choice likely to run afoul of those in authority. Now his last paragraph is really important. Now, that second century world, don't forget, laid the foundation for the success in the third and fourth. And how? By existing as a close-knit, doctrinally bounded community that required her members to act consistently with their faith and be good citizens of the earthly city as far as such was compatible with faithfulness to Christ. So, brothers and sisters, here's what I'd want to say at the outset this morning. Yes, it may be true that the cultural winds are becoming more hostile to genuine Christianity. But remember, the last time this happened 2,000 years ago, God revived the known world. So what an opportunity for us to be a marginal sect of genuine Christianity and change Raleigh and beyond for Christ by holding truly to the New Testament. I would push against Truman only here. I don't want to go to the second century. I want to go to the first. (laughs) I want to go to Scripture. 
And in Scripture this morning, we're going to see how God's stance through the church is to the outside world. Now, many for the last 10 years have been arguing perhaps Christians should just withdraw and pack it in and be a countercultural that no longer engages in the world. Others have argued on the opposite side. Perhaps we should try to regain political power and thus change the world. But you know what God tells us to do in this passage, church? What should be the key thing we do in our stance toward the outside world? We should pray. We should pray. And we should pray with purpose. This series of 1 Timothy, the key verse is the one we read earlier, 14 to 15. This is written so we would know how we ought to behave in the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Remember, as I illustrated last Sunday, if I gave my wife a diamond ring, but I didn't give her the ring, only the diamond, she would no doubt lose it. But the ring gives it prongs that both protect and promote it. The church is the place where truth is protected and promoted. But here in today's passage, we see that it is bound by prayer. So look with me in God's Word in 1 Timothy 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. The church must pray. Look in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge, and I'll get a little Greek with you this morning. The Greek actually is parakolon un proton ponton. So of first importance... The Greek could not be said more strongly. Paul is saying, I urge, I plead, I strongly compel you, first of all, to pray. So he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. So if Paul prioritizes prayer for the church, he must mean that prayer is powerful. How have you been viewing prayer lately? Perhaps this is a good course correction for us. Whatever's going on, first of all, of great importance, pray. D.L. Moody serves us when he wrote, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Notice the words that are compounded, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. The first time I studied through this, I looked up the Greek meaning of every single word and thought, oh, maybe he's telling us different ways we should pray. That was just a rookie error on my part. The New Testament scholar William Mounts writes this. These four different words of prayer can have slightly different meanings, but that's not the point here. Paul lists four as a Semitic literary device to add import to praying. It's a way to add more and more emphasis on the importance of prayer. So don't get hung up on the different words. Catch this point. We need to be praying. And who do we need to be praying for? Look at how verse 1 ends. For all people. You mean the church is to be focused on praying for those outside the church? Yes. And if you think all people really means all people, look at the kind of people he lists in verse 2. What kind of people? (laughs) Kings. All who are in high positions. Think of who that meant for Paul in his lifetime. Paul needs to pray for Nero, he needs to pray for Claudius, he needs to pray for Vespasian, he needs to pray for Domitian, he needs to pray for some of the worst emperors in human history. Yes. Yes, the church is to pray for all people on the outside, those who are in positions of governance especially. So notice the first of all urge that God gives us here in chapter 2 is the church must pray beyond the church. Church must pray 
beyond the church. And notice towards what end. Verse 2 continues, that we may. I'll give one more Greek insight here. Greek has formulas. If you use a certain mood with a certain tense, it indicates a certain thing. And this is a hina plus a subjunctive mood, which means we are to pray for a specific end result or for a specific purpose. And here's what it is. Look here in the English. So that we pray for this intended goal that we may lead. And then notice we have two couplets. We have the word and connecting four terms into two sets. First set, peaceful and quiet life. And the second set, godly and dignified. So notice we're praying for a specific purpose in mind. And the we is the church. Church is to pray so that the church can fulfill these duties. All right, let's slow down and look at the couplets one at a time. The first couplet, peaceful and quiet. The word peaceful means undisturbed, uninterfered with. And the next word quiet means tranquil, untroubled. So notice then the church is to pray for those who govern us, for the authority figures in this world. But first we're to pray so that we can live undisturbed, uninterfered with. Paul, of course, never experienced this in his lifetime. But he calls the church to pray for it. But it's not just peace for the sake of peace. Notice the next couplet, godly and dignified. The word godly means piety. The church is to pray for peace so that we can have devote piety to God. And the next word dignified is behavioral dignity. The church is to pray for peace so that we can live out a testimony. So it's peace for a purpose, a purpose of promoting God. Arkent Hughes helps. He writes this. This was not a prayer to live a quiet, middle-class life free from stress. Because in 2 Timothy, Paul says all who are godly will be persecuted. Instead, it's a prayer that those in authority would provide peaceful conditions in which Christians can live exemplary lives so that the unsaved will speak well of our Lord. Hughes concludes, The indisputable fact is the best argument for and against Christianity is Christianity, or more precisely, how Christians practice their Christianity. Christianity lived out can make inroads where nothing else can. There's a very bright apologist, Cornelius Van Til, and I remember reading his works, and he was once asked, what is the hardest apologetic question? And he answered, why don't Christians live like Christians? Is the hardest apologetic question to answer. Here, Paul is saying something similar. Let's live as Christians ought to, and that's why we pray. Now, let's go ahead and pause at this point. When we think about praying for our government, this may not be the first way we think about praying for them. But this passage lets us know something important. Let us be careful, Christian, when we're praying for our leaders, that we do not slide into praying for victory for our causes rather than first praying for our Christian testimony. Paul's primary prayer is that we would pray that we display a godly and dignified life so that those who see us would see our Lord. In fact, I've seen a number of like political prayer cards that people can take home and they almost always stop at verse two. They just have verse one and verse two. And then the implication is, hey, go pray for your government, 
pray for your leaders however you want to. But brothers and sisters, this is not a fill-in-the-blank prayer. Actually, the prayer is given specific intent. Grammatically, verses 3 through 7 are tied with verses 1 through 2. So we're to pray what verses 3 through 7 compel us towards. William Mounts is worth quoting again. He writes, prayer is the context, but salvation is the content. So what we're praying is for the salvation of all, especially our leaders. To prove that, Paul will give three arguments. So this would be letter A, B, and C underneath number two. Here are the reasons we pray for the salvation of all people, especially our leaders. First, we do that because of God's desire. That's in verse three and four. Then letter B, we do that because of Christ's sacrifice, verse five and six. And then we do so because of Paul and our ministry. That's verse seven. All right, letter A, we should pray for all, especially for salvation, because of God's desire to save. Look in verse 3. This is good. What is the this referring back to? Is it referring back to us living a godly life? Or is it referring back to our prayer? Trick question. The answer is both. So this is good. That we pray and that we live godly lives. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires all people to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. You have your Bible open. Look back just a second in chapter 1 and pick up in verse 15 so that you see that this is what God's heart desire is. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, chief worst. Verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're to pray for all people for their salvation because that's in accord with God's desire, his heart, we might say. But now let's look in verse 4 and let's pause and try to explain it carefully. Verse 4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. And that could be confusing to you on a number of grounds. It could be confusing from this standpoint. Wait, doesn't God elect? Is he not sovereign over salvation? Or it could be confusing to you on these grounds. Wait, aren't there some who will reject God and be damned eternally to hell? How do we make sense of verse 4 then? Is verse 4 promoting what theologians call universalism? That everyone eventually ends up in heaven because that's what God really wishes could happen? Well, we know it's not that. So let me just try to explain it and then I'll get technical. All right. All right. First, I'm giving you the bottom line. Then I'll back up and give a little more technical explanation. Okay. First, the bottom line. This verse is revealing God's heartbeat. God, in many occasions in the Bible, tells us his heartbeat. Think of Ezekiel 33, 11. God says, I have no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked, but I would rather you turn and repent. So God takes no delight in the punishment of those who reject him. His heart is that people turn. So this verse simply tells us God's heart. But let, now let me get a little technical to help us understand how we should understand God's desire or his will. In English, we have the word will or desire. And so when it's translated in English, we 
tend to not be able to tell the difference. But in Greek, there are two different words for will that indicate two different types of will. The Greek word thelo is used to describe God's wish or stance or desire, his heartbeat, we might say. The word boule reveals God's decree. Let me give you an example of both. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says this. This is the will, it's the Greek word thelo, of God, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So God's will is that we abstain from sexual immorality. But is God's will broken in that case? Every day, millions of times. So God's will of desire can be broken all the time. But now think of the other Greek word, boule. Ephesians 1.11 says this, according to the purpose of his, again, the English word is will, but the Greek word is boule, his will who brings all things to pass according to his purpose. All right, so God's desire that we abstain from sexual sin is broken all the time. God's will that works things to their intended end is never broken. Let me give you two English words to help keep them straight. God's desire is a good English word for what may or may not happen. God's decree is a good English word for what will always happen. That helps capture what's going on here in the original language. God's stance, his posture, his heart is that all people would be saved. But sadly, many people will reject such a great salvation. And God is sovereign over it all. I'll quote Donald Guthrie who writes, It could be argued that God, what God wants must always come to pass, but it's important to remember that both the Old and New Testament speak of God's desire or His will in varied ways. Sometimes His will is His decree. What He wills to happen happens. At other times it is His command. Others is only His stance. Here, I think he's worth quoting. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul is anxious to stress God's compassion on all people irrespective of race, status, or condition. Whatever Paul and the other New Testament writers say about election, certainly it is integral to early Christian preaching that God desires all to come into the knowledge of the truth. So here in 1 Timothy 2, 4, it's very similar to the Great Commission where Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. So God's heart desire should compel us to pray for all people, even our authority figures, towards their salvation. Let me pause on that and press it out applicationally. Let's say there's a bill in our state that would determine something significant in its moral stature. And it eventually moves to the governor's desk. And the governor has the power to veto it or to codify it. If the bill is one that would be pleasing to God, then on the basis of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, we should pray that the governor will promote what God calls good and punish what God calls evil. But we must not also forget to pray 1 Timothy 2. We should pray that the governor would genuinely be saved if indeed he is not. We would pray the same thing for the Supreme Court. If they're working through a significant case, Lord, help them to promote what God calls good, to punish what God calls evil. But God, even more than that, we pray along with your heartbeat that they might be truly saved. Look now in verse 5 and 6 as it takes it even further. Many think this is an early church creed 
summarized. We're to pray for all people towards their salvation because that's Christ's sacrifice offer. Verse 5, for there's one God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. By the way, as a boy who grew up Catholic, verse 5 is very important. We don't need mediation of human priests. We don't need mediation of deceased saints. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So friend, there's only one God. Whether or not he's acknowledged as such, there's still only one God. And there is one mediator. Whether or not acknowledged, he is in fact the only access to the Father. And there is only one ransom. Notice in verse 6, this ransom is given by Jesus at the proper time. Proper time means the testimony was given after he ascended back to glory. Then it was being able to give in with clarity. So we're to pray for all people, especially towards their salvation, because that's God's heart, but also because that's Christ's offer. But now third, we're to pray for all people, especially towards salvation, because that's Christian ministry. Look now in verse 7. For this I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I love this clarifier. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles. Remember, Paul was commissioned to go beyond the Jews to the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says something very important, and it's the word appointed. The gospel is something that does not belong to us. So it's not ours to decide where it is sent or to whom it is offered. It is belonging to God. And the verses we just read said this is God's desire. This is what Christ has done. And so surely the Christian minister and the Christian would also offer freely to all what God has commissioned us with that belongs to him. R. Kent Hughes says this, God's desire drove Paul to engage in a worldwide mission. It is not our responsibility or capability to solve the puzzle of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It is our task to preach the gospel universally to every tongue and every people. So 2 Timothy, sorry, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, I'm writing these things so that you would know how you ought to behave as the church. So church, how ought we to behave? We ought to pray beyond the church especially for our leaders, for our authority figures. And we ought to pray, not fill in the blank prayers, but we ought to pray for their salvation because that is God's desire. That is why Christ came. And that is our ministry. Now, I've been using the word saved all through the sermon this week and last week, which I wouldn't want anyone to be confused about since it is God's desire. It's why Christ came. It's our ministry. It's the most important thing for you to understand what does it mean to be saved? Well, let's pause on that for a second. What, what, what do we need to be saved from? Romans 5 puts it so clearly for us. Romans 5, we read in verse 9, we must be saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. What we need to be saved from is the wrath of God. And in the passage we have today, we have a little bit of a better sense of how salvation is achieved. Look again in verse 6. Writing about Jesus, it says, who gave himself as a ransom. 
This is a vital way to understand salvation, so let's really pause on it. Notice the verse says, he gave. That means he did it as a gift, and he did it willingly. Notice what he gave. He gave himself, so the cost of the ransom is his own life, or as the Bible sometimes summarizes, his blood. So what is a ransom? It's a really important phrase. Remember in Matthew, when Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus described his own ministry as one of giving a ransom. What is a ransom then? Well, it helps to have some Old Testament backgrounds. Let me give it to you. In the Old Testament, there are three Hebrew words used to describe a ransom. The first is kofer, and it means a covering. So imagine you own an ox, and your ox breaks out and does a bunch of damage. You have to pay and kofer, a ransom, a covering for the property damage you caused. The other word is goel. You might know this one better. You know the biblical book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, the word goel is used to describe a ransom. When Ruth loses her husband and then lives with Naomi, she now lives in a situation where economically she is dependent. She has nothing. She has no future. She has no children. She has no way of income. And so she needs a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, a family member who will pay a Ransom. Do you remember the end where Boaz stands at the gates and says to them, Hey, I think you're a closer kinsman redeemer than I am. Would you like this land? And the guy says, Sure, I'd love this land. And then Boaz adds, Yeah, but if you want the land, you also have to take this widow and you have to take her mother-in-law and you have to raise up a child through her and then you have to give the land and the inheritance to the child. Do you still want the land? And the guy says, No, no, I don't, I don't want the land anymore. So ransom is used in the Old Testament to describe a kofer, a payment, a covering. It's used to describe a redemption, a purchase of something that otherwise would have been lost. Notice so far, both times ransom is being used, it's that costly sacrifice to the ransomer. The third time it's used in the Old Testament is pition, and that's used to free a slave. Remember in the Old Testament era, if you couldn't pay your debts, you would enter voluntarily into economic slavery. How did you get out? Someone would pay your debt, or you would spend your life trying to pay it. Again, ransom all three times is used at costly sacrifice to the person paying it to free someone by grace. In the New Testament, there's only one family of words. And the word ransom is only used eight times in the entire New Testament. Its scarcity, I think, actually makes it even more important. So here, I'm ready to give my own definition. (laughs) What is Jesus' ransom? The price is his life. The rescue, who is he ransoming? Who is he rescuing? The indebted, which is us. What is our debt? The wages of sin is death. The only ransom Jesus can pay is his entire life. Why is he paying it? To whom is he paying it? C.S. Lewis uh, made famous the idea that Jesus is paying off Satan. Perhaps if you've seen the Chronicles of Narnia, you've seen where Aslan makes a deal with the witch and pays off Satan. But actually, the scriptures don't don't teach that. Jesus doesn't need to pay off Satan. I have good news for you. Satan's not that powerful. (laughs) Uh, Actually, what actually happens in Romans 3 is Jesus voluntarily pays the Father so that his justice is satisfied. 
Romans 3.26 says this, because Jesus has offered himself a propitiation, God can remain just and justify the guilty. So actually what Jesus does is he, totally innocent, offers himself a ransom so that he can cover the debt of the guilty. And God accepts that on his account. So how do we get in on it? Romans 3.25, it is received by faith. We accept, we rest, and we rely on what Jesus Christ has done as our ransom. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in the 21st century, and I think Truman is right. It is like the first and second century. Christianity, for those of us that are going to spend many years in this century, very likely will be a marginal, inimical, rejected sect by those who are in cultural positions of power and influence. And I think we're right where God wants us to be. And the way we ought to respond to that, according to this passage, is with purposeful prayer. Prayer for our leaders. Prayer for all people. But prayer not just for political victories here and there. No, something much bigger than that. Prayer for salvation. A.C. Dixon says this, When we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. And so on. When we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. See, this passage tells us what is of first importance, especially when we feel marginalized, is that we pray We must pray for our leaders towards the purpose of their salvation. We need to be praying for people outside the church, praying for peace, praying for our testimony, but praying most of all that God will save. So each week we're defining what the church is because we're at a point where we need to get down to the definitional level. If you were here last Sunday, you saw from chapter 1, the church, the church's message we saw in chapter 1 verse 15 is that God saves sinners. Praise God. The church's composition, all of us should still be able to say, I today am the worst of all sinners, but I have a greater Savior. Therefore, we might say the church's song is, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. But this morning we see, thus, the church's prayer is, God, save more as you saved us. The gospel is central, then, to the way the church lives and its rhythms. Let this affect the way we gather on Sunday. Let it affect the way we gather on Wednesday. Let it affect our private prayer life and the way it reverberates through our community. Let us know how we ought to behave in the household of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Let us be the prongs on the diamond ring that promote and protect it, that show to the world how great the gospel is. Russell Moore, several years ago, wrote a book called Onward. The basic thesis of his book is that the Bible Belt is disappearing. Cultural Christianity is vanishing, but it's actually a great opportunity. And here's what he wrote that I think is worth sharing today. As the world changes that we live in, we will recognize the necessity of engagement in social and political action as we see the limits of such action this side of the New Jerusalem. But we engage with culture not with the end goal of winning, but with the end goal of reconciliation. 
This means that morality and social justice, while good, are not enough. We witness to a gospel that seeks not merely to reconcile people with other people, but to reconcile them with God. And the obstacle that keeps them from reconciling with God is our sin and our guilt. And that obstacle is not removed by a voter block or a policy paper, but by a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Don't forget what we uniquely have that no one else has. The ransom who gave himself for our sin. That's the heart of our message. And that's the heart of our congregation. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you that in your sovereignty, it appears that you have ordained that we would live in a pivotal time in our country's history. A time in which you and your word seem strange, are actually thought of as immoral, repressive, and regressive. You are so good to have put us in this moment. And you are even better to have given us the solution, the ransom. God, whatever else happens in policies and votes, and we care about those things, and surely we want to engage in them. Remind us what the end goal is. The reconciliation of God and man, who once walked in the cool of the garden together, and have only been separated because of our rebellious rejection of you. But the goal is that Jesus says in the final day, Behold, I am making all things new. The dwelling place of God is again with man. Lord, our neighbors, our coworkers, perhaps our family members, perhaps someone here even this morning, help them to realize that really the key core thing is that we are right with our God, that we have a relationship with our Creator, that our sins are covered by the ransom. Lord, as we transition to communion, help us to marvel that Jesus gave himself as a ransom and he paid the full price. Thank you that on the cross he said it is finished and our sins could never be held against us again. And thank you that the tomb is empty and he's risen victoriously. Give us faith that you can revive this country and this world like you did in the third and fourth century. May you glorify your name by bringing revival through salvation. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.